Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music year. I am your host, Hillary Jones. Well, uh, it's been a rough week, politically, emotionally, you know, the hits just keep coming. Uh, I got into this a little bit on Instagram, and if you want to hear more about my thoughts specifically, hang around after the interview, and I will talk a bit more about in detail, I guess, the the problem with parlor and similar, I guess, quote unquote, free speech spaces and how to make those better. So I'll, I'll get into that at the end of the conversation here. Uh, on an unrelated note, I also want to bring your attention to this if you haven't been checking it out. Please follow the She Shreds One Riff hashtag. If you aren't following, it is fabulous. Um, it's hashtag one rad. There are really just so many cool, impressive musicians And if you are a part of a company and looking for folks to promote your gear, definitely take a look. I assure you, you will find just so many, so many folks. So yeah, I don't know. Check it out. All right, let's get into it. I want to start off by thanking Midrisk sponsors. So first of all, Earthquaker Devices, the best. If you were thinking about getting into some sort of otherworldly reverb perhaps in 2021 because any other world seems better than the one that we're in right now <laughs> you'll have your chance earthquaker is currently having a giveaway of an afterneath euro rack module uh which can get you there so go to their instagram page at earthquaker dev like their post tag three friends and uh, you might be one of the winners check it out so here is the earthquaker devices youtube comment of the week from youtuber Doug Wurtenen, who says of the Afterneath Eurorack, quote, it's a gift in a curse to live in a day where you can pretty much find anything your heart desires very easily. This device is part of that gift. Give it to me, please, and thanks, unquote. There you go. I also want to thank once again Studio 121. Skylar can help you with all of your audio needs. Uh, very quick turnaround, super reasonable priced, editing, production, recording, podcast music, jingles, whatever your heart desires, she can help you with it. Find Studio 121 on Instagram at official Studio 121. And last but not least, I'd like to thank Stompbox Sonic. Stompbox Sonic provides musicians with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration. Specializing in effects pedals, they offer a curated collection of companies, large and small, some locally crafted, some assembled from around the world. They are based in Boston, Massachusetts, just one hour north of me right now. Uh, Adam and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009. And by working collaboratively through one-on-one consultations, they do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring your music to life. Nice, huh? They will help you. (laughs) You've got a pedal question, they will answer it. Comfortable, judgment-free environment. I've heard nothing but good things uh, from from them. So I definitely recommend, or about them, I guess, from them as well. They're very, very nice people. So you should definitely check out Stompbox Sonic. Whether or not you're in the Boston area, they have a ton of rad pedals available on their website. So check them out on social media or at stompboxsonic.com. All right, these sponsors support the podcast, and I hope you support them too. You can find links in the show notes uh, to sponsors and to the Midriff Instagram and Facebook pages and website. All right. So today's interview is with Emily Milgram, who is the drummer in Las Nubes, who, as you will hear, (laughs) were the first, air quotes, all-female band to play with Iggy Pop. She's one half of the Sound Art Project Archival Feedback, co-owner and buyer at Sweat Records, 
a record shop in Miami, which is rad, co-founder of Miami Girls Rock Camp. What can't she do? I ask you that. Uh, we had a great conversation. We got into all kinds of stuff, all of that stuff, and way more. Uh, <laughs> we might have even done our version of a Jud Jud song. Um, if you don't know what Jud Jud is, just look up J-U-D, J-U-D on YouTube and, you know, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, something I was never expecting to do on this podcast, but here we are. I think you're really going to enjoy the interview. So here you go. Here's my interview with Emily. much for being here. Uh, can you introduce yourself to folks, your name, your pronouns, a little bit about yourself and your background with music? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Emily Milgram. Uh, often appears on the internet as Emily Blair Milgram. I like my middle name a lot. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Uh, I have been doing stuff in music for a really long time for my day job. Uh, I am the co-owner and music buyer for Sweat Records in Miami. And as we're recording this today, uh, it's my 10th anniversary working there. So I'm particularly excited about that. Um, I also play in a bunch of bands and different musical configurations. Uh, My most, I guess, known band is a band called Las Nubes. I play drums in that band. Uh, I also do a bunch of field recording stuff with a collective called Archival Feedback. I also have a record label called Other Electricities. I do a lot of stuff. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you're originally from Miami, you said? Uh, I was born in Connecticut, full disclosure. Oh, okay. But my family, my family moved here. I won't tell. My family moved to Miami when I was three years old. So pretty much. That counts. Yeah. That counts. I don't remember yeah. anything before I was seven anyway, so. Yeah, there yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, all right. So, so there's a lot going on in the world right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I had read a headline that I think I don't remember. It was maybe the Miami Times. Is that what Miami New Times? Miami New That's Times. Like the yeah. Alternative it, Weekly. Yeah, yeah, it was something to like. After playing with Iggy Pop. Las Nubes has a big year plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that big year uh turned into something very very different. Yeah, so what's what's been happening? So yeah, we we played with Iggy Pop. That's its its own whole anecdote. I'm sure. <laughs> and uh we were we were like, "Whoa, like this is this is happening. Like this band thing in a time where it's kind of difficult to do a band thing. Uh, mm-hmm. wow, this is going to happen. This is going to be amazing." And in uh, January of 2020, we left on tour to Mexico, and it was incredible. 
Uh, and we were like, whoa, this is like really, really happening. We went to Mexico and we played and people knew the words to our songs. Whoa. And kids were asking us to like, sign drumsticks and bringing us fan art. It was so weird. And uh, we came back. And on the day that we were going to release our uh, split EP uh, with another local band, Palomino Blonde, the world went on lockdown. And now we're here. Yes. <laughs> so our, our, our big year turned into something very different. So, so what have you been doing uh, in the interim? Um, on, on the band side of things, we were very fortunate while we were in Mexico to uh, have recorded uh, five different sessions, live sessions with different people. We did one with a pedal company. We did another one in an incredible recording studio another one with uh, Indie Rocks magazine. So we had all this material that we were mm -hmm. able to put out over the year. We, we, we picked up on that uh, live stream thing real fast when everyone yeah. had to start doing that, which was cool. And we've been writing. Uh, we felt a, we were feeling a lot of pressure to, you know, get the second record out there. And mm -hmm. now with everything changing, we're just like, we're going to really slow down and make the record we want to make, not just make mm -hmm. a record to keep that record making momentum. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, in some ways, I guess it's nice to have the space to to do what you want with it and not have the pressure. Yeah. But also, you know, I feel like I'm sure it's it's a big mental adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's been weird not playing shows and touring because we're a very show-playing, touring band. And <laughs> uh -huh. it's been, yeah, that's been strange. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like a lot of bands have, have been in this space where they're, like, really digging in mm -hmm. um, in a way that they maybe haven't in the past. Like, some folks are just really, like, cranking stuff out in a very productive way. Not, not in a, like, not in a quantity necessarily mm -hmm. way but quality way as well which is cool yeah i mean i know we personally we haven't practiced since march wow which is bunkers that's a lot yeah yeah it's not cool but you know we have two band members with kids and they're in school like now um and so like it just feels not safe to have that happening yeah um so i'm let's get into gear a little yeah, bit shall absolutely. we so what was your first experience with gear uh, uh I guess obligatory answer is when I was a kid, they told me you're going to take piano lessons, uh -huh. uh, which, you know, as a kid, whenever parents or grandparents are like, you're going to do this thing, that's, you know, in my mind, just not a great way to approach things. Cause you're, it's like, I'm being mm -hmm. told to do this thing that I maybe have no interest in, which was the case. You know, I did it, uh, out of respect for my grandmother who was really pushing me to do it, but I didn't have any interest in it. I was really young. I was about seven or eight. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was my first experience and I was learning not on an actual piano, but on the Yamaha keyboard, which in retrospect, I still really wish I had cause it was pretty cool. The first gear experience I had that was something I was interested in is, uh, I don't know if it was because I saw a cool band or something, but when I was about 11, I was like, I want to play the bass. All right. Mm. So, um, my stepdad, uh, took me to get a bass and we went to a local guitar shop. I don't think it's still there, but it was a, like around for a while, like a Miami staple, Ed's Guitars. 
and they sold us a full size, full scale lion base. I think lion's oh, yeah. like a PV subsidiary or something. L Y O N. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a I'm a small stature person, and as you can imagine, at 11 year old, at 11 years old, I was a much smaller stature person with this base. <laughs> I also didn't take lessons. It was just pretty much a scrawny little kid noodling around on a base that was way too big. I don't even remember if I had an amp. Um, <laughs> it was like that, you know, one of those. It's just like I, yeah. I want to do this thing. Do you do you remember what band it was that you saw that made you excited? I don't know. At that age, I'm trying to rem- like remember what I was really into. Yeah, and I was super into pop pop music so the things that Mm -hmm. I loved the most was like Janet Jackson I loved Mm -hmm. Wilson Phillips like I I got the China Phillips haircut I was I have photos of myself I I took (laughs) I had a a poster and we took it to the place I'm like I want this haircut um and I still I still love Wilson Phillips I sing it all the time to my cats so uh I it might have been but I don't recall Wilson Phillips ever like having a bass I don't I know that piano. Oh, Carney would present. play the piano, yeah. you know, yeah. but, um, I don't know. And now I play the drums. <laughs> so. Now you play. The, yeah. So when did you, when did drums become the, the thing for you? Um, growing up, it was, uh, the, the bass thing didn't work out. I was like, wow, this isn't what I thought it was. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. I thought it played itself. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, grandma, one of my grandma's friends gave me a nylon string guitar just randomly mm. one day. Hey, do you want this thing, kid? I was like, yeah, cool. And I started playing that. It was generic. It had horrible action. So, of course, you know, you give a kid an instrument that's a crappy instrument and they're going to get so easily frustrated because mm-hmm. even doing something basic on it is very complicated. But I messed around with that. And then after that, it was a series of guitars. I liked the guitar. Uh, I was teaching myself off. I don't even know. I guess there weren't really tabs at that point, but there was very rudimentary sources of tabs on like GeoCities or something. Right. Doing that. Angel, angel fire. Yeah. Angel fire. And I got it. I got into guitar and, uh, that was sort of my thing for a minute. And then I don't know why, but I decided I want to play the drums and I got a drum kit and my mom was like, Oh no. So I played it for about a week. And I didn't, I didn't really pick up drums again seriously until my mid twenties. Mm. And then I sort of gave up on them again when I moved back to Miami and then I picked them up again, uh, at the, at the urging of a friend, uh, mm-hmm. who gave me a drum kit. Uh, my friend, uh, Beatrice Monavaro, she, she's an amazing drummer and she, she saw me kind of, uh, eat shit as we say on a drum kit at a party and she's like dude you need to play drums and she showed up uh at the record store like two days later with a with a shitty drum kit she's like take this like do it and yeah and we're here that's rad um so so obviously you're doing a lot of different music stuff Mm -hmm. so what is what are the tools that you're using right now so i guess it's it's three directions i would say Drum wise, uh, just because of space and because it's what I have, uh, I play a, a Gretsch Catalina Club kit, which mm-hmm. is mismatched color wise because that's how it came. And I was like, oh, I'm weird. not shipping back drums. I'll just deal with the floor tom being a different color and this and that. So wait, how? So they literally, it's a different color, not just like one's a little bit lighter. No, no, no. I, I it's. I mean, you probably can't see it with the camera I can't angle, quite see but it. it's uh, yeah. What the floor tom is this marbleized brown and the other parts are like pearlized white 
And that's how it came. They probably just sent the wrong box because all the Catalina yeah, Club yeah. stuff was there. And I was like, uh, this is fine. This will work. So that's my my drums, uh, varying configurations of um, Sabian and Zildjian cymbals that I've been using for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's my that's my main drum setup. I also have an SPD-SX, but I don't use that in my band. At least not mm-hmm. yet. We're talking about it. We're seeing if that yeah. becomes a thing. And then about five years ago, I started to really get more into electronic music and production. Mm-hmm. So for that, uh, I've been learning Ableton and oh, cool. I use a push two and then, um, a novation launch key make three, mm-hmm. which has really blown my mind. Cause I've never really done stuff with keyboards or keyboard mm-hmm. controllers before. And that's, wow. Uh, that's something else that I, I want to have more time to delve into because the little time that I do spend with it, I'm just, it's another world. Yeah. Um, and then since, you know, a big part of my life is also records, record buying, selling, making, etc. you know, turntable setup is important. Uh, so, uh, mm-hmm. techniques, SL1200, uh, uh, make two, it's actually a European model and I have to use a converter mm-hmm. to plug it in, Whoa. which is fun. Uh, but <laughs> if you can get a working 1200 from the eighties and yeah. keep it working, that's the thing. Totally. Um, and then I still have a sure M44 needle on that. That's going to crap out. Apparently they're going to make some Japanese clones pretty soon. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to that. So that's, nice. that's my gear. Yeah. yeah. Do, so, well, so, so two questions. So you also do a lot of like field recording mm-hmm. and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So what do you usually use for, for that? You know, field recording uh, is cool. Uh, for a lot of reasons, but especially because you can really use any tools. When when mm-hmm. Tom Tom Wheeler Castillo and I made the first archival feedback record, all the recordings we made were on a Zoom H2. So yes. we kind of made a whole <laughs> record uh, or the basis for a whole record on a Zoom H2, which is awesome. kind of uh, at the time was their most basic model. I think the H1 came after that. They made an even lower model. Uh, We've upgraded uh, Zoom H6 is a model we use now, and then microphones have definitely changed. So we use the, ca- the different capsule mics for the H6. We use binaural mics. We build microphones now. We've just sort of mm-hmm. sought what we've needed based on what we're mm-hmm. attempting to do. And most of the, for the, for that work, it's mostly field recording and then you're manipulating mm-hmm. it. And what do you use to manipulate it? Yeah. So field, field recording and manipulation, sometimes it's been uh, field recordings that we make and give to other people to manipulate and then do mm-hmm. whatever they want with it. Uh, we started doing manipulations very basically in audacity and mm-hmm. audition and now have uh, moved on to Ableton uh, mm-hmm. as that. And um, I haven't I haven't experimented too much using the SPD SX for that because a lot of what we do is more um, studio based, so it's not playable. And Got it. I haven't I haven't experimented much with programming that, but I've thought about that too. For we've done a couple performances where it could be easier if stuff were more interactively playable. Is there is there a piece that you think would be useful for you to have to like? Like something that you you don't have or don't use now that you think would be useful in that kind of way? Um, you know, having gotten the push to and then mm-hmm. now expanding to a keyboard controller, I think that's yeah. the next thing. And I've actually, the last work we did uh, was a 
a compilation charity album called Moon Over Miami, which we had a bunch of other artists contribute to. And the piece that we put on it, uh, I arranged entirely using Ableton, made it in a way that it's playable live. Like we, you know, we didn't know how long the pandemic was going to last. We made this in maybe March. Mm-hmm. And I was telling Tom, I was like, let's, let's approach it this way. So if someone's like, Hey, we would love for you to perform this out. I'm not scrambling to like find all the files and do this and figure out how to not just push play and, you know, Hey, yeah. so, uh, arranged everything. You could work on some choreography. Right. Um, Think which I mean, that would be kind of fun, <laughs> but, um, doing it in a way that's able to be recreated live using mm-hmm. Ableton live yeah. and the push oh, to controller. What do you know? <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't messed with the push tube very much before, but it seems so powerful. It's very powerful. It just—I feel like sometimes seeing seeing some of the hardware like that, uh, or I mean, some of the Ableton software, obviously as well. Mm-hmm. It their possibilities are so wild that it, for me, sometimes it's almost over, like it's almost paralyzing yeah. to think about what you can do. Yeah, um, parameters are ever, important. Yeah, that, I guess that was my question. Like, do you have parameters when you do that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Uh, I'll create. Uh, like w- the project I was just referencing, which is the first bigger thing I've done using Ableton uh, created, you, you know, there's a million drum sounds and a million drum racks and a million this and whatever. And it's like, no, I'm going to find the exact drum sounds I like for this. And I'm making that be the drum rack. And that's what I'm going to play. I'm not going to get yeah. too nebulous. And even just coming up with, you know, okay, we're going to write in this time signature or we're going to do this or do that. So you're not like, oh, let's see if we quantize it this way or let's put this groove Mm. on it. Yeah, you can do that forever. But that's the thing. You would end up doing it forever and you might not have a piece (laughs) at the end. Right, right. Yeah, that's I think that's really smart. Yeah. And for people who maybe aren't familiar with a push, it's like um, a little pad that you can assign different sounds to yeah it's it's um it's basically intended to recreate everything that ableton can do without you having theoretically having to look at a screen or look at the at the program interface or as a friend of mine likes to say to make it look like you're not checking your email while you're on stage (laughs) (laughs) and that's um it's another language when you think about your experience with like gender and identities and gear Mm -hmm. you know how does that play out for you it's been, it's kind of been twofold. I, you know, I know a lot of other, you know, female and female identified people who have had run of the mill, horrible experiences with, you know, regarding gender and gear and all of that. Mm-hmm. For me, it, it didn't start like that. It sort mm-hmm. of became that as I got mm-hmm. older and started working in different areas and in more serious areas. Growing up, uh, I didn't play a lot of music with other people. But if I did, it was usually a close friend, like some of my Mm -hmm. closest friends um, who I'm still friends with to this day, we would noodle around on whatever instruments we had and it was fun and it was lighthearted and no one was judgmental. And these were always guys. I had a lot of guy friends growing up, but it was cool. And, you know, sometimes I was a little bit better than them. So that was great. Mm -hmm. You know, no one's going to be like, oh, you suck at that. Then I got older, you know, the the story I like to tell uh, about my drumming, at least, is that in those early days when I was trying to play drums, when I had a drum kit that I could play for like two weeks, um, I had set up in my room. I must've been about 17 or 18. A friend came over and he's like, yeah, try and play this beat. And I think it was like a Portishead beat, which, Mm -hmm. you know, you listen to Portishead and you're like, that doesn't sound complicated. That shit's hard to play. (laughs) And a lot of that shit isn't even played by a live person. It's electronic. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's like, oh, play this um, whatever whatever Portishead song. And of course, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I can't even, you know, do the stuff. And he's like, I don't know, man. If you can't even play that beat, you probably shouldn't even, you know, try playing drums because oh, that's really simple. He wasn't a drummer, by the way. So that was great, too. And so that was my first experience of like, whoa, someone's telling me I'm not cut out for this. Yeah. My mom then telling me I couldn't play drums in the house cut me off at the pass almost immediately yeah. so that all coalesced into whatever and that was that was a weird experience uh as I got older and started to play music when I was living in Portland uh it was mainly with guys most of them were cool nothing too weird I, I did I did definitely feel at times that there was a little bit of the like you know they were giving me a shot and being a mm-hmm. little less hard on me than they might be on a guy who was playing uh-huh. at the same skill level as me it's almost in some ways, and I hadn't thought about this before, like there's almost a little bit of a chivalry yeah. like to that, you know? Yeah. Like I'm being I'm being a good guy by letting you in or something. Yeah, there there was you know? there was definitely that. I felt that a lot. And and it, it was never in a creepy way with them so much because I I'm openly queer and that's like on the table from the get-go. Mm-hmm. So none of these guys were like trying to get in my pants by letting me play in their band or anything like right. that. Uh, but it was still like, this is a woman. We're going to be okay with her dropping that fill left and right, you know? Right, Whatever. right. It's okay, little lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely some of that. When you're purchasing gear, have you had particular experiences related to that? Obviously, you know, your drums, it sounds like you got those or- orders. Yes. So that's maybe different. But <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't buy a lot of gear. I usually mm-hmm. buy something and, and stick with it. The, this drum kit I bought when I was living in Portland. When I moved, it was sitting in my friend's basement. And eventually, when I went back to visit, I shipped it back here. But uh, most recently, you know, sometimes there's things where it's like, crap, I need sticks or crap, I need a head, you know, something like that. And I've gone to, I went to Guitar Center once. I used to play with these uh, Promark Shirakashi Oak Sticks which according to the guy who I asked for them at Guitar Center, he's like, that's not a thing. And I'm like, no, but it's a thing. I have them at home. Uh, my last pair has like gone to shit. I need to get more. No, 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 they don't make those. I'm like, yeah, they do. They're called this. There's a little sumo guy on them. Like I need them in 7A. And, mm-hmm. and it was this back and forth. And I was like, never mind. I ordered them online. Yeah. You know, and then another time in a not guitar center in a small drum shop that shall remain unnamed because it is local and still active. Uh, Mm -hmm. I had to go get a head, which actually was funny. We were, I was going to buy a kick, a kick batter head because we had to replace the one on Ale's drums before we played with Iggy pop. Uh huh. Cause we wanted everything to be, you know, top notch. Right. And I went to the shop and I asked them for what I wanted, which was an Aquarian head. And I told them it's the exact head I have on my drums no that they aquarium doesn't make that yes they do i have it it's called this it's on my drum kit at home i would like one in a 22 size please no no no. aquarium doesn't make that but we'll sell you this whatever the hell and it was one of those moments where time was of the essence i couldn't order something online i was like fine i'll take you know this head instead and Mm -hmm. it was just like come on and i was i was so tempted in that moment to be like yo i'm about to go play drums with iggy pop (laughs) like don't fuck with me don't make me tell you that right Um, to get you to take me to you to take me seriously yeah exactly but who knows they might have been like who what's that Mm, i don't know (laughs) so so that's kind of related to 
music gear. Have you had any particular experiences live that have been, you know, related to um, identity or gender or anything like that? Um, I'm the drummer. So usually, <laughs> you know, I'm in the background. I One of the reasons I like playing drums is because there's typically no electronic components involved. And mm-hmm. uh, I can most often hear myself, which is important with or without mm-hmm. a monitor. I think the, the most common thing I see happening, and I've heard some people say this too, is uh, you'll ask, hey, can I get this in the monitor? Can I do this? Can I whatever? Oh, yeah, sure. It's never happening. You're yeah, not getting yeah, yeah. it in the monitor. And it's just like, yeah, <laughs> it's like, we need to play. All right, let's do this. So it's like one ear plug in, one ear plug out. I'm going to shift this right. way so I can maybe hear the singer a little bit better. And it, yeah. is that a gender thing? Maybe. I don't know. Is, right. that, is that a sound person curmudgeon thing? Probably. And, you know, I've had I've had different experiences with sound people saying, wow, your drums sound great. That's such a small kit. I can't believe it sounds so big. And then mm-hmm. most recently I had someone say my snare sounds like a garbage can. Like, oh my God. And I'm like, wow, that's my favorite. My favorite thing in the world is that specific snare. And you just said it sounds like a trash can. Awesome. <laughs> so that is our new joke that I play the trash can. <laughs> I can be in the next iteration of Stomp, apparently. I'm yeah, equipped. it's a, some sort of Oscar the Grouch sort of thing. Yeah, I am grouchy. Yeah. So that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that's rough mm-hmm. so you're you're also playing across a variety of genres I'm wondering how that works for you like do you see this stuff play out differently in different spaces uh yeah I I, I would say that you know your standard issue clubs with rock bands where I guess Las Nubas would fall into it's it's all the same stories you hear all the same people tell yeah you know can I help you carry that oh are you playing the keys oh are you the merch person though that's happened yeah, yeah. to everyone in my band except for Gabriel is a man and he's been playing with us pretty regularly for like a year now so mm-hmm. you know that's happened to everyone but him but it's funny because yeah. there were times where he would be with us he's he's Ale's partner too and there are times mm-hmm. where he would be with us not playing with us but of course, they're not like, are you the person doing merch? Even though he was, you know? Our, <laughs> um, so that's uh-huh. funny. I feel like in the experimental and sound and noise things that all intersect in different ways, although yeah. they can still be very different sides of the spectrum, those communities have been pretty pretty embracing to everyone. And I think it's because that's just, hey, we're embracing all the weirdos. You know, mm-hmm. you wanna you wanna play a plastic straw at international noise conference. You <laughs> That's right. Do that, and I've I think a lot of the confidence I've had as a performer, but also as a person dealing with different types of gear, have come out of that community. Where mm-hmm. yeah, just you ride that mixer, you do a feedback loop, like do right. that choreography with your feedback loop. Uh, I love that. I love that about experimental music and noise that it embraces all sorts of folks and mm-hmm. no one is there like, ah, you suck, ah, get off, ah, whatever. It's just every, you know, there's very little expectations, at least in my, yeah. my experience, you know? Well, and it's interesting too, because I feel like the, you know, at the international noise conference, you have like 15 minute sets mm-hmm. for, for folks. And I, I wonder how like that, it's almost like a, everyone gets the same amount of time yeah. and, I don't know, you know, having not been part of booking it, I'm not sure how that works exactly. But if there's like somebody who's like, you know, 
really new versus someone who has, you know, maybe more experience? Does that play out differently? Does do- Yeah, uh, that's not necessarily, that's typically up to, so there's a lot of different stages. There's different nights. Um, and it's really up to the curator who is also end up being stage manager and often uh, also sound person for their yeah. stage. It's up to them to figure out how to do it, but not really. Uh, you can you can bring additional stuff if you want, but basically when you get there, what you have at your disposal is um, a mic or two. So basically like 258s and a basic PA. That's mm-hmm. it. Uh, you can, you know, maybe request a DI if you need it. I usually, I like to have a DI cause I, yeah. I encourage people to bring their own mixer and we'll just run DI. Yeah. But you know, I, I've always arranged my, my specific stage. I've always just arranged and like, this would be cool after this, or this would be, you know, complimentary or like this person order. needs to play late. This person needs to play early yeah. and that's it. And I feel like a lot of the other stages are like that too. And have been mm-hmm. like that too. And it is like, it's a well-oiled machine considering it is hundreds of people and jet lagged people. And yeah, it's, it's impressive how it, how it comes together. And, uh, I'm assuming it's not happening this year. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's sad too, cause it's been going on yeah. for a really long time and it is a really beautiful and empowering thing. I believe there's lots of folks who have played their first set there and it opens a world of uh, possibilities and aspirations for them. Yeah. I think that's kind of what I'm getting at a little bit too, is like, I feel like the opportunity of that and the fact that you can come in and just play a short set, but also have like the, you know, and I know 15 minutes is not that odd for a noise set, but like, it just feels, I think that it, it's more equitable, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then also like maybe is less daunting for people. Yeah. And 15 minutes is just your max. You can, do five minutes you can do you know a one minute harsh noise blast you could play a ukulele with the coke can for five minutes whatever um yeah that's that's great it's fun it's it's fun and it's unpretentious which is hard to find (laughs) in music yeah it's really cool that that it does allow a lot of space for experimentation not shocking Mm -hmm. um but but yeah that that kind of I think too the perfectionism piece of that because you're just it's it's ha- it's just happening and there's this this it's kind of open a bit mm-hmm. I think is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Have you found that that folks in the noise scene like I feel like there's a component of folks in the noise scene that sometimes are more on the like nihilist tilt that are you know I feel like if you're trying to create this space to be open to have people, you know, create and feel comfortable creating that I don't know I guess the the line of like what space you're creating there and like what is offensive or not offensive or how you're creating a safer space for folks I guess that's I'm just curious how that plays out and not and I have lots of friends that are involved in this as well so I'm not like calling anybody out I'm just wondering how that's managed yeah I think you know international noise conference is one event and I, th- I think that it's kind it's, it's unspoken mm-hmm. that any blatant fucked up racism, misogyny, transphobia, homophobia, anything that you wouldn't have fly <laughs> is like, that's not going to happen. And, I, yeah. and there are enough folks involved, at, le- at least locally in the scene who will shut that shit down in two seconds if it happens. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah. 
And that's also, um, I give that disclaimer, you know, at least for my stage, if I'm bringing in someone, I usually kind of know everyone, but occasionally Mm -hmm. someone will hit me up like, Hey, I hear you have a stage. Can I get in there? Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. And then it's like, Hey, any of this happens, I'm unplugging you and kicking your ass out. Yeah. Like this does not happen here, but I do know, uh, you know, there's a lot of pockets of noise music, uh, you know, harsh power electronics, you know, all that kind of stuff that teeters on the edge of some stuff that is very, very questionable, very fucked up. Um, I don't go there and I don't, I don't particularly welcome anyone who goes there into my circle. Um, yeah, I, I I also think that's another very, very loaded conversation that could go on <laughs> for a really long time. <laughs> totally. You and I, I guess my I, it was something that was sort of like swimming around in my brain. Yeah. And we don't need to get into yeah. it. But I was just curious. That, like... that conversation could also kind of go into the world of, you know, different types of metal, which is actually totally. something we were, yeah. we were talking about at work uh, yesterday regarding, yep. hey, now all of a sudden these guys who were in thrash bands and death metal bands from the 90s are storming the capital okay right 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 and who are the i only heard about ariel pink who who are the metal folks that were involved um, the, I don't actually know. the singer from iced earth which, oh i did see that yeah yes, which yes, is yes. funny enough there was an iced earth reissue coming out this week and i'm like cool yeah we're gonna carry iced earth man i pulled that uh, out of the box yesterday and i was like great <laughs> i can't even return this because i don't think the distributor takes returns because of fascism Oh no! I mean, sometimes they'll delete stuff like um, fascism, notwithstanding. I know there's a lot of folks who deleted a catalog from, you know, Burger Records bands yeah. when all of that was going on. And there's there's other things. And I have, you know, I've I've canceled some orders before with distributors and said, here's why I'm canceling this. And I remember when I forget what the label was, but a bigger label canceled the last Ryan Adams record you know, mm-hmm. on the eve of it coming out, which I was like, mm-hmm. yes, great, yeah. amazing. Uh, so I guess bringing that conversation into the space of a record store, mm-hmm. what kind of things do you do to create a positive space in in your in your store? Um, I mean, I know you're, I know it's limited at this point with yeah. can come in or not, but like, yeah. We like to believe that we're um, very friendly, very welcoming, uh, have excellent customer service. We also employ people who represent, you know, our community at large more so than a typical record store. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't every record store in the world, but you know, typical record store is usually white dudes and white dudes mm-hmm. and white dudes. And then other dudes. Uh you don't see a lot of female and female identified folk in record stores and we are predominantly female and female identified we only have two guys who work at the store and one of them is a big old queer bear so there's that uh you know we employ people of color trans folk and we're all super friendly and no one is batting an eyelash at you know someone picking up I mean, not that I have a problem with anything that we carry because I carry it all, but, you know, some folks are just very excited to pick up the new Ariana Grande record. And that's awesome because right. they're coming in there and they're buying that record. Do I love Ariana Grande? I don't think I even know what one of her songs sound like, but that's okay. And someone being able to come into a, to a record store and buy, you know, a super saccharine pop record and have the person in the metal t-shirt covered in tattoos be like, hey, awesome. Thanks for stopping in. That's an important experience. 
Mm-hmm. No, that's great. And it's a good, you know, like if you're creating the space where they're comfortable being there, maybe they'll come back and maybe they'll, you know, check out some other different stuff and yeah. get further into music and further into records, which is great. Yeah. I had an opposite experience when I was working in a music store uh, or in a record shop in the ni- late 90s uh, where I had, you know, my first experience with like uh, pay inequity, <laughs> you know, my, you know, our boss would like carry porn like had a bunch of piles of porn in the basement like (laughs) yeah but also that like you know I was young I was like 18 years old and like we'd have you know kids come in who were into you know buying tickets from Ticketmaster because we were a Ticketmaster Mm -hmm. dealer and they're like we're gonna get our Backstreet Boys tickets or whatever with their mom and we're like we're gonna play Cannibal Corpse or whatever ha ha yeah uh so like we were not doing a good job don't do that my um my (laughs) my forcibly playing uh metal specifically grindcore in the store is usually or was usually when um we used to have like a couch and more of a sitting area and a cafe that's been gone for a minute but we had this couch and when I first started working there, this couple would come in on weekends, they would buy one drink to share and they would make out on the couch and it was oh. gross. So I would put on grindcore <laughs> to try and make them leave. Um, and also that, that band Judd Judd, which was that like, uh-huh. vocal, you know yes. what I'm talking about? Yeah. So yeah, it yeah. was like, all right, you're going to hear Pig Destroyer or Judd Judd, <laughs> get out of the store. Like you can't just buy a chai and feel each other up on the couch. I'm sorry. For folks who aren't familiar with Judd Judd, should we do a little Judd Judd? Okay. Uh, which um, are you going to do like rhythm or? Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll do rhythm if you want to do the other part. Okay. All right. Right. I just felt like that was important. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining that, me. That. That's a real yeah. thing. Uh, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't Discord who put out Judd Judd. Who was it? Ooh, I don't. Remember. It was a, another punk label. They put out like a couple forty yeah. fives. Yeah, check it out. <laughs> if you want to get people to, off of your uh, couch mm-hmm. making out. Mm-hmm. Any other experiences within like? in in the space of record stores because i feel like that's something we haven't gotten into yeah. too much in the podcast that you think is related to gender identities that you want to like lift up absolutely i yeah. am a female identified and female presenting human running a record store you can mm-hmm. only imagine what some people you know think coming in never ever 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 is myself or my co-owner lauren assumed to be the owner mm. uh, unless somebody knows that at the mm-hmm. onset uh, they will always assume and or approach the most male-looking creature in the store as though they are the owner or the manager or the buyer or the person who knows everything about everything. It's weird. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's especially weird because if you're even thinking about the layout of the store, you know, you could walk in and you walk in and there's a counter and I could be behind the counter. Uh, about 20 feet away in the back, there could be a guy pricing records and someone will come, hey, how you doing? Can I help you? No, 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 I'm all right. They will go to the back and ask the guy for stuff. And one of the guys who used to work there, this guy, Randy, and he was the metal guy. He'd be working in the back pretty exclusively uh, doing used records. And we would love it. Like folks would come in, they'd bypass me. They'd go ask him a question. He's like, I don't know. You got to go ask the boss. And it was just like, yes. He, like he <laughs> loved it more than I did. He's like, oh, uh-huh. I love having to send him back to you. You know? So... It's still, um, yeah, it's still a thing. And even one of our employees is a trans woman who is self-described as sometimes male presenting. 
Mm-hmm. And she, the other day she was even saying, you know, we were, we were having a discussion sort of about this and she was saying, yeah, I can see customers who are like really easy, really quick to approach me. Cause they think I'm the guy in the store mm-hmm, and they, mm-hmm. it's like, they don't even know <laughs> what's going on. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know why I, I have inclinations as to why, but I don't know. don't, don't know why records are still this like super, super male oriented thing. It's fucking music. It's Ariana Grande, you know, like, yeah, yeah. um, But for some reason, and, you know, we, one of the things, granted, we're not super duper open to the public as we were before, you know, it used to be like a million people in the store and people sitting around and it was beautiful. Now it's five people at a time, mass required, social distancing, you can have 15 minutes, whatever. But Mm -hmm. in those days where, those days, uh, where we would have, (laughs) back in the day, back in the day, um, where we would have just people come in. One of the things I, I would observe and would frustrate me to no end is, you know, guy comes in with girl in whatever configuration, girl goes and sits down at the table and is eating shit on her phone. It's just mm-hmm. like, but do you not like music? Do you not listen to music? What What's intimidating here? Like, is is the culture intimidating? Has this person you're with intimidated you? Are people at other stores intim- Like, what's making it so you like don't even have a passing interest in looking at all this beautiful artwork and all this music and just being able to have a moment and be like, Oh, be like, yeah, man, Janet Jackson control. Holy shit. I used to choreograph dances to this as a kid. I love this. It's just like, Nope. On the phone in the back, head down. I've seen people do it for like two hours. I've also seen, you know, wives, moms, whatever, wait in the car. Mm-hmm. And I've had like guys be like, yeah, my wife's waiting in the car. Can you blah, blah, blah and hurry this up? It's like, what? Like, why doesn't she want to enter the record store run by women? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting, too, because I'm thinking about like the um, similarities to someone coming into like a music shop or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, because I think there are there are a lot of similarities in the and how people are expected to um, interact in those spaces. Mm -hmm. And there is, I think, a perceived by the general public level of knowledge that one needs to have about the product in order to interact with it. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? That that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, much like a gear store, you do get a lot of people coming in who think they know a lot about the product and approach mm-hmm. you as such and <laughs> uh-huh. don't, and you know, male, female, notwithstanding, like don't want to take your expertise because they're convinced, uh, oftentimes because of the internet that yep. the information they have coming into the stores is correct. Um, yep. and that, that creates a problem as well. Um, you know, we've, we've often talked about trying to create some sort of campaign, if you will, to, you know, get, get women comfortable in record stores to have a, mm-hmm a listening club for female, female identified folk, uh, even just like simple things like this is record player. It's super simple. It's yeah. literally analog. This is how it works. No frills. Boom. Totally. I think that's actually a big part of it too, is like for people who aren't familiar with it or didn't grow up with like using a record player, mm-hmm. they're like, what is this magical thing? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how this works. Yeah. I have to get a whole like set up. Like I need a, you know, what do I need to get this thing to actually work? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just, you know, like I push a couple buttons on my phone. Right. Sometimes it's a little bit easier than using the phone, actually. I've found there's I some agree. apps where I'm just like, what? <laughs> and also, I feel like there's a way that records, like we're talking about parameters, right? Like, 
it's nice to have the parameter of a physical record mm-hmm. as opposed to like I have literally every piece of music that's ever been created mm-hmm. on my uh, in my fingertips like that's too much yeah. in some cases you know yeah absolutely um, and I think the benefit of having a space like a record store or a guitar shop or something like that is that you can have a conversation with somebody hopefully mm-hmm. who's not going to be condescending uh who can help you answer the questions that you might have about like either how the actual technology functions or like help you get what you need yeah like whatever you know you know oh you like aria Ana grande maybe you'll also like machine murphy like yeah, yeah exactly so you know it, it doesn't seem like it should be that hard but i feel like like you're talking about like almost like having workshops to like help get people to the next step who might be freaked out or like feel like there's like a barrier yeah to access and that's also i mean there's also the like a lot of people don't think that any contemporary music is on vinyl either i mean we had kids come in the other mm-hmm. day it was a young girl and her two friends and uh she wanted to buy a turntable and they were kind of ragging on her like they were all mm. there you know there must have been you know 17 18 and they were sort of ragging on her like oh why do you want to buy this old dusty shit uh you know and mm-hmm. when you enter the store, you see kind of our used record section first. You yeah. walk around to the other side, and it's all the new stuff. So then her two friends walk around to the other side, and they're like, what? They have J. Cole? Holy, wait, they got Denzel Curry? Wait, I, don't, I thought this was only old shit. And, it was, and they, like, had a moment. Whoa. You know, they'll be back. Yeah. But, you know, approaching that, it was like, let's make fun of our friend who wants to buy some dusty ass Almond Brothers record in our minds right. or whatever. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because I feel like I've had this conversation with some folks about about music stores, about like, because I feel like there's a little bit of like, I don't want to try anything out because I'm afraid. I don't know. Like, there's the same like kind of barrier to trying something mm-hmm. or like in the same way that I think there's a barrier to almost like actually looking at the records because I don't know like what I'm looking for or I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if there's a if if you or other folks might if there's a way to like create like a records 101 kind of like how do you get into this? Like, yeah. what what do you need to do? Like or like what should I look for or, you know? Yeah. In the same way that you're like, I'm going to try to pedal like I need, you know, I need some instructions on how things actually work or whatever. Yeah, we've done. I don't know. Yeah. Myself and Lolo, the uh, co-owner and co-founder of Sweat, we've done a couple workshops externally by invitation from other places and organizations to do a thing like that. Oh, cool. Um, But the context has also been very limited. It's like we did one at the standard. (laughs) It's like for Mm. people who are staying at the standard. Okay. yeah. All right. (laughs) That's not 100% the audience I would like to reach with Records 101. But yeah, you know, th- those are things we sort of had on the docket and we're talking about pre-COVID. Clearly, we can't do that right now. I mean, we can maybe do something online, but there's uh, it's just not the same as being like, okay, now you come up, you drop the needle. Like, yeah, see how totally. not intimidating it is? Like, you can touch the record. Holy crap, you can touch it. You can yep. do all this stuff. It's not going to disintegrate in your hands. There's a lot, you know, I, I, I want to do that. I want to show, I want to show that to people. And it's not, you know, not just um, from a gender angle, but also youth. It's so important to show this to youth. Yeah. Well, and it sounds, it's, I mean, this kind of bleeds in a little bit to your work uh, running a record label. Yeah. Um, because it seems like, you know, you do, you have a lot of like, uh, ambient and electronic and mm-hmm. things like that, but also like some like more doomy stuff and some more like indie folk stuff. Yeah. Like it seems like there's kind of a range. Yeah. How does how's that worked out for you, or how do you make those selections? Or it's it's worked out in the sense that I can say there's nothing that other electricities has released that I don't personally love. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think in the same regard has worked against me in the sense that it's like, oh, you're not experimental enough. You're not metal mm. enough. You have a yeah. folk record, but yeah. So I I feel like, you know, at this point, it's been about 15 years that I've been putting out records and it's, it's diminished quite a bit in the past few years because some of my other projects have taken precedence over it. You know, I need me time, uh, but um. <laughs> It, uh, you earned it. Yeah, I, I I spent so many years putting out other people's stuff, and I was just like, I want to put out, st- I want to make stuff, I want to put out stuff. So that's yeah. sort of where I've been for the past few years. But yeah, I, I think in the long run, maybe being so open genre wise and not having like a flagship artist from the get go has been uh, a detriment. You know, it's not like I'm Warp Records. Here's Apex Twin. Who cares what else we mm. put out? You know, Mm. I think it's a lot of that. Um, And again, people just being like, no, we're not going to review your experimental thing because you also have a pop record on your label. And I don't care anymore. It used to bug me. And now it's just like, do I like it? Do I have enough money to do this project? Cool. And that's it. Yeah. All right. So I am curious how all of this sort of like relates to your work with Miami Girls Rock Camp. So... Full disclosure, I'm no longer with Miami Girls Rock Camp. I resigned in August. Uh, I was a co-director and a co-founder. I guess I still remain co-founder because, you know, that's an event that happened. And so this all ties in, though. Um, You know, my leaving Miami Girls Rock Camp was because a lot of things were changing in my life, especially regarding work. It's just like, how do we keep the record store open in a pandemic? And this is where my focus has gone. And it's great that it did because it's worked so far from what we can see. But Miami Girls Rock Camp started because Miami is like really slow on the pickup for a lot of things, especially socially and culturally, uh, I don't want to say innovative things, but you know, you know, rock camps, rock camps have been around for a minute. Miami started one in uh, 2014. The first summer Mm -hmm. was 2015. And it started because another um, local musician who I knew via the record store and via shows knew very casually Steph Taylor sent me an email. Like I opened my email one morning and it was an email from her saying, Hey, have you heard of these things called girls rock camps? I really think Miami needs one. And I know you're a very busy person, but I can't think of another like more appropriate person to help me start this. No big deal. If you don't want to, I just wanted to throw it out there. Wow. And then we did that. You know, these cultures intertwine uh, local music scene, girls rock camp, record store, record store that is primarily run by women, queer folk, trans folk, all that. Mm-hmm. Cause that's, those are important things that happen in girls rock camp. And then also the ideas of accessibility to things like music, gear, instruments, records, you know, people not being intimidated, people being able to express themselves through these means. Yeah. So just all, just all made sense. And now, yeah, it's like, now there's a rock camp in Miami that's been around for almost seven years. That's amazing. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, have you used any of your, cause I mean, traditionally camps focus on like may like rock quote unquote instruments, Mm -hmm. like guitar, bass, drums, vocals, keyboard, maybe depending. Um, I don't know if you all do other instruments or not. Yeah. At, uh, the last session was a virtual session Mm -hmm. and, uh, by necessity, And also, I mean, it was something that uh, they had wanted to incorporate at some point. Eventually, we uh, incorporated production because that was something easy to do remotely. And it was very basic. Um, They were using uh, BandLab 
for the most part and utilizing um, some tools and videos from other camps. Uh, my partner, Mariana, and I helped uh, just kind of rebuild uh, the website to facilitate virtual and distance learning and sharing a little mm. bit better. And so that was part of it. We built like little little portals for each instrument, including production. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other things that was discussed a bunch but never happened and is a little harder to do remote was uh, an actual uh, vinyl DJ track. Because, cool. you know, in, in camp, not all the kids want to play an instrument or write a song, but they would love to be be the DJ at the finale and be throwing that stuff down. Um, and I was, you know, tenaciously, uh, not as a track, but every year trying to put, um, you know, noise, experimental instrument building contact. Yeah. Mic that was sort of stuff. my question. Yeah. <laughs> that was always me from the get go. Like, let's get weird kids. Yeah. 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 And, uh, the, the last in-person year we had, so 2020 was virtual 2019. I got really ambitious and I was like, Hey kids, we're going to make a light synth. This is going to happen. We are making a photo oscillator and a Red Bull can. <laughs> it was a disaster. <laughs> um, I, you know, there wasn't enough time. It's hard to do that in an hour and a half. Um, but I, you know, that was one of the things where it's like, this is, this is important and it's important for kids to get their hands on things. And we weren't having them solder. Like that's scary to try and do in an hour, but we got hot glue. That's not going to hurt anyone you know, that kind of stuff and just kind of teaching them to use their hands and use electronics. And like, you, like you cannot, your phone cannot be near you for the next hour and a half. Right. I want you to touch these wires and I want you to touch this resistor and I want you to understand what they're doing and we're going to make it fun and we're going to be silly while we're doing it and show you funny videos. But like, that's so important it, it, to me, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, at camp, it's like, Hey, Emily, this mic's broken. And I'd be like, cool, I'm going to fix it. And I grab whoever's nearest by be like, you want to learn how to fix a mic? cool, we're going to do it right now. Yeah, and then, yeah. you know, we just fixed the mic and then someone learned how to fix the mic and that continues on. And that, nice. that's a super important thing. And, you know, there's folks involved, uh, with Miami girls rock camp who can perpetuate that. So I hope it, I hope it continues on. Um, do, do you do any like circuit bending or anything like that? Not circuit bending specifically. I mean, I'll build small things like, uh, uh, oscillators, photo oscillators, mm -hmm. contact mics. Uh, a lot of that was sort of out of curi like curiosity uh -huh. and necessity. Mm -hmm. um, like we've done that stuff for for archival feedback, just because we're like, how do we record the sunset or the sunrise? <laughs> and then it's like, well, photo oscillator would sort of do that in a data sonification kind of way, mm -hmm. and we can build a photo oscillator. That that's that, but actual bends, no, I haven't delved too much into that. I'm super curious about it. I have the you know the hacking manual on my desktop forever, and you know one day I will look at that. Wait, are you busy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although the the photo oscillator we built uh, was from the hacking manual, so oh. I've built something out of you know the good old fashioned hacking manual, which I actually got or found out about through GRCA conference, like the oh. first year I was there. So, you know, it's all, it's all cyclical. Yeah. I think the first, I think maybe the first time I built a contact mic was at GRCA conference. Oh yeah. And then I lent it and then I lent it to a rock camp kid to do something and they broke it and they felt so bad. I'm like, no, 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 it's cool. Like this thing is worth about four cents and I didn't even pay for these parts. So, um, so, so we're getting to the end of our conversation a little bit now is there if you were talking to someone in the music industry or music year industry 
what what would you tell them about how to make those spaces better? Admittedly, like my music gear industry side of things is more on the record side of things. So I can speak from that. And I I go into a lot of record stores, at least when we're on tour and whatever. It's just like, man, be nice to people and don't be condescending and welcome everyone and don't roll your eyes and consider carrying, you know, your Ariana Grande's and your Demi Lovato's and your whatever, because there's an audience for that stuff. Granted, there are niche stores if you're only carrying techno. Yeah, I get it. But, you know, everyone, everyone's taste is important. You know, it's, this music is important to them. And I'm sorry, growing up, everyone listened to like cheesy radio stuff and they always will, they always have. So it's important to just be inclusive and not, you know, not be somewhat responsible for the experience a 12 year old girl has walking into a record store in a, in a negative way, you know, make her want to be excited about always going back there and having that fond memory of someone who helped her find like, you know, something additional that she fell in love with there and, you know, will kind of uh, help her just grow her musical taste indefinitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really good. I think that's, and I think that can be applied to a lot of spaces too, yeah. like that it's, it transfers for sure. But I think like, because a lot of people's first experience with music is in listening and not in playing, like, I feel like that's, an, you know, it's also important to allow people space to be a part of music in whatever way works for them. And it might not be that they're going to be a musician, right. but they might be, you know, that, that having that space to connect to music in the way that works for them is is great. Yeah, being an appreciator and a collector is a huge thing. Some of the people who come to the shop the most frequently have not played a lick of music in their lives and they mm-hmm. but they know so much about it and they can talk to you about, you know, tempo and timbre and mixing and mastering just as much as an engineer or a performer can. Regarding gear especially, you don't need to have the most crazy expensive amazing gear. Mm-hmm. You know, as they say it's the driver not the car. And that's a really, really important message to share with folks, to share with youth, because if you can hear it and you can envision it, you can make it happen with almost anything. Uh, And that's, it's super important, especially nowadays where we can't all be together. It's like you can record a beat on your desk with your hands and you can do something with that. And it might be even more amazing than some heavily produced stuff that you hear out there that doesn't have (laughs) the heart or the intention, you know, and uh, that's important. Is there anything else particularly coming up that you want people to keep their eyes out for or just that new new record that's coming out? Yeah, I mean, we're writing, we're writing, we're writing. We we got some stuff. We got some other stuff in the pocket that we just started kind of in the pocket. (laughs) Um, I don't know why I said that. (laughs) Up our sleeve, I think, is what I meant to say. Cause we're, we're, we're far from in the pocket. Um, <laughs> we're not that tight. Yeah. The band Las Nubes, we have, um, some stuff coming up. Hopefully, you know, we're just trying to be consistent for our own sanity and also to just, you know, keep a little bit of whatever momentum, archival feedback. We are going to be doing a talk with, uh, Mocha North Miami, uh, in, uh, I don't know if this, if this will air before that, but it's February 12th or February 10th, I believe. Um, with some other artists and we're going to be talking about uh, noise and sound in the context Mm. of the art world, which is interesting. I just completed uh, doing the sound design for uh, an artist uh, called Sasha Wardsell for her, for her solo exhibition at Light Arts. Mm. And that's going to run January 20th through April 4th. 
Uh, it's in Miami Beach. There should be some, there's going to be some online programming surrounding that. And we've talked a little bit about trying to put the audio somewhere online so people can experience it. It's a multi-channel installation. The first time I've ever done something like that in conjunction with, a, you know, another uh, sound engineer friend of mine, Denise Faxis, who's incredible. She figured out the, you know, noodly bits and I figured out the sound bits and it's Sasha's vision brought to life. I, I, I really want to make a solo electronics record. Maybe I'll make that this year. I've been talking about it for a long time now. But I feel I feel very capable, especially now with a keyboard that I haven't mm. really worked with before. I think it's going to open some possibilities. So we'll we'll have links to all your stuff. But um, is there and, and if anything comes up and we'll we'll try and let people know about it. But mm-hmm. uh, what are what are your for, for people maybe who aren't on the website and are listening? How can people stay in touch with you? Yeah, I'm I'm very easily accessible for better or worse. Some people like to, you know, order records via my email at four in the morning. Not that I'm checking it at four in the morning, but yeah. Sweat Records, sweatrecordsmiami.com. You can find me in any Sweat Records channel. That's probably the best way to find me just because that's what I do most of my time. The band I play in, Las Nubas, we're uh, Las Nubas Miami on Instagram and Las Nubas or Las Nubas Band, other places. We're the only one. And uh, Las Nubas means the clouds. So we're literally in the cloud. Uh, Whoa, all over the internet. Wow, it's so meta, wow, right? Um, wow. Yeah, uh, and then yeah, just other. You know, all my stuff is very. It's a close knit family, so you find one, you can easily find all of the others. And I'm in front of a, a computer a lot, and I I reply to every email. Uh, so if you want to hit me up for anything regarding any project I do or whatever, just don't ask about putting you in touch with Iggy Pop because I. I don't have his email either. We, we, we deal with his management. So I, I, we get that a lot. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. No, we're not sending him your demo. That's funny. Yeah. Well, uh, um, I, I'm not, I don't doubt it. Place, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. So cool. yeah, hit me up if you want. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for, for taking the time and for talking to me. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and it definitely kept me sane during quarantine, working alone in the store for eight hours a day um, in sweatpants. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like I, I've listened to some of the episodes multiple times and I appreciate uh, the work you're doing. It's important. Thank you so much. Right back at you, of course. Um, cool. Well, uh, we'll uh, be in touch. Thank you. All right. Thank you. I love talking to Emily so much. And I I will say I really appreciated the ways that the conversation sort of like shifted between different spaces and in in music and the ways that many of the approaches to making them safer were similar, whether it was like a noise show, a record store, a guitar shop. Right. Like it was it was there was a lot of overlap, which was really interesting. And I will say, speaking of spaces, Let's talk about parlor, shall we? (laughs) So if you're listening to this, you probably agree that what happened at the Capitol last week was very, very bad. Um, And if you don't agree, I'm surprised that you're still listening. But here we are. All right. What happened was a threat. It was, you know, not just to our democracy, but to an equitable and just country free from white supremacy, right, (laughs) which are needed in order for democracy to function. If we don't have those things, then we don't have democracy anyway, which arguably we don't and never really have had in America, but that's another story. Anyway, you, like me, also have probably never been on Parler, 
Uh, but I bet that you have been to other spaces online or in person that go largely unregulated, right? I was recently listening to an interview uh, by Kara Swisher of the Sway podcast with the CEO of Parlor, John Metz. And, you know, it was recorded the actual evening of the insurgent. She's like, people are at the Capitol breaking in right now. And there, it was, it was a wild conversation. In it, of course, he thoroughly denied any responsibility for what was happening. He laid out the way that they moderate their content, which involves a panel of five users who vote on the acceptability of their content. I am not convinced that that is a hyper-diverse population uh, representative, you know, just guessing. Uh, otherwise, the only content that is removed is uh, content that's illegal. And just a few days after this interview, uh, Parler was pulled from the Apple Store, from Google Play Store, Amazon, uh, all everywhere. And President Trump was also pulled from everywhere, right? Twitter, Facebook, every platform, Pinterest, I don't know, everywhere. And so I don't think it's overstating it to note the importance of Parler, Twitter, Facebook groups and the like that they have in spewing unregulated lies and creating space to sort of like organize these dangerous plans, which you know, likely culminated in the events of last week. So, you know, this is, <laughs> this gets back to my main point, which is that spaces that don't focus on the rights and safety of all ultimately will lead to harm for all. And I'm going to cover a few of the problems with these spaces, whether they're online or in person, and then talk about some of the solutions. And obviously, when, when you're thinking about this, you're probably gonna be thinking about music spaces, but you can think about really kind of any space. I think it's relevant. So the first problem is freedom of speech for whom? Uh, and the issue is that the lack of regulations in these spaces is under the auspices of like, quote unquote, freedom of speech, right? So, you know, if someone is, is so threatened though by your speech that they can't even engage in a conversation, whose speech is really under attack? So this is basically weighing one person's human rights against someone else's right to say harmful things. And it seems obvious to me that someone else's human rights are more important than my ability to say whatever I might want to that might harm them or incite violence. In other words, I would say that, you know, my right to a freedom of speech stops when it infringes on your right to speech, safety, or other human rights. Make sense? All right, problem two, words are powerful. So. Growing up, you were likely told sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you. And perhaps on the hierarchy of harm, it isn't at the top, but it builds a space where further harm can become acceptable. Um, and the words themselves can be harmful. So if you grew up hearing negative things about yourself, you're more likely to be in an abusive relationship when you get older, right? So those words were harmful, even if it was just emotional abuse, not actual physical abuse. And you know, people tend to listen to others who they look up to or have influence, um, their words is seen, are seen as important. So this could be the president, could be a musician or a popular person in, in a social media space. If you believe you know, that you aren't influenced by anyone around you and are totally making all your decisions on your own, congratulations, because you have beaten 100 years of psychological science. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> I, 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 you, you get an award, I guess. Uh, whether it's rape jokes, Pepe the Frog, whatever it might be, those kinds of things are actually normalizing harm, which leads it to become worse. So, of course, words can also be used to organize violence, as we saw last week. And, you know, if you leave comments that are racist in a conversation because of free speech, think about who is reading those comments and what they might then learn is acceptable behavior. So words are powerful. 
problem three. Freedom of speech does not mean freedom from consequences. So yes, legally, someone may have the right to say whatever they want, but it doesn't mean that they should expect freedom from consequences. So if you engage in harmful behavior or language, some people might be harmed and <laughs> you might get kicked out of a space, you might get kicked off of a website, they might feel bad. There's lots of things that could happen here. In a privately owned space, the owners or moderators have a right to determine what is acceptable behavior and the related consequences, right? They get to decide what happens with this bad behavior. Um, and, you know, people interacting on social media are people. Online spaces should be treated like real spaces with real consequences for folks' words and actions. If they aren't, then people will act like there are no consequences, okay? So that's that's important as well. So there's this is a huge problem. It's been a problem forever, you know, but as we've learned, managing spaces, especially online, can be a real challenge. So what are some of the solutions? Let's, let's get into that. So solution one is identifying who isn't there. So how do you know who isn't there if they aren't there, especially online, that can be tough, right? So it's easier to like read a room when you can see who's there. One way to figure out, uh, you know, this information is to do a survey of who is there and reverse engineer it. And once you learn who isn't there, you can find them and ask them uh, what they would want in a space like yours and how you can best provide it. And this may take time. People who aren't there probably aren't there for a reason, which is usually that they have learned either from the words of behavior or of those who participate in it, that it isn't actually for them. This is, you know, if this is the case, you might need to build trust if you want them to participate in your spaces. And if they've really been burned, they might decide that they'd rather create and participate in their own space. And that totally makes sense too, right? Why would they want to participate in a space where they don't feel welcomed, let alone centered? So first step is identify who isn't there. Second um, solution is to live your values. If you do hope to grow a more welcoming space, a good step is to ask, does your space, company, or organization have a mission or value statement? So these types of statements can be extremely helpful in guiding your moderation when it comes to online and in-person, you know, moderation and expectations, right? You know, for example, if you're in a workplace creating a value like, we respect each other, well, what does that mean? You can operationalize it by saying, we encourage constructive dialogue and hard conversations. <laughs> we build trust so we can have those conversations. Hard conversations do not mean harmful language. So there's other ways that, I mean, those are just examples, but that means that if you apply this to moderating, for example, social media, you might allow some conversation to occur, but if it gets harsh, you delete it. Obviously, if the operational is harsh, but you get my point. You delete it and contact the person share resources with them or something like that. You know, you could have one-on-one -on -one dialogue with them. You tell them that you would love for them to, you know, be a part of the community if they make some changes. So, you know, almost like a transformative justice sort of approach based on your values, however you want to approach that. Values are useful to companies and spaces in just so many contexts, right? So I'm using this like social media thing. It could be a specific workplace issue or whatever, you know, could be deciding how to deal with a band that's been accused of engaging in harmful behavior or, you know, someone making offensive comments, um, you know, like at your workplace or on Instagram, right? It's a great tool. Solution three, creating community agreements. So understanding the expectations of a space, whether in person or online, are tantamount when it comes to creating spaces where everyone really feels comfortable bringing their whole self to the table, right? And in both online spaces and in person, that might mean 
that you need to explicitly lay things out, like no hate speech, <laughs> with an explanation of examples of what that might mean. It might mean that you need to explicitly state that offensive comments and memes will be pulled and that like someone might be kicked out or banned. Like, What are the consequences? It might mean that you have a clear accountability process where someone is given a chance to do something, some reading or have a dialogue about the issue. They're allowed back in this after they've done the, the appropriate work to contribute positively to the space, as I had said before. What this means is that you are creating a space that supports the rights of oppressed groups to be in the space over someone else who might have like white supremacist, sexist, or otherwise harmful speech. And hopefully you want to create a space where those things aren't happening, right? So hopefully you can take some of this and go forth and create it. And I discuss some specifics around creating community agreements in uh, my blog titled Community Agreements in COVID-19 from Early in the Pandemic, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes. All right. So hopefully some of this is helpful in thinking about the ways that we talk about free speech and what it actually looks like and means. It is not exhaustive at all. Um, and of course, all of this needs to be paired with large scale systemic change. But this is the piece that we have control over in our spaces in which we're engaging, right? So whether online, at work or beyond, right? If we want to create a music community where everyone feels like they belong, that they can be a part, that they feel safe and supported, creating and participating in, and you know, we can help create those spaces together, right? All right. If you enjoy the show, please rate review on Apple Podcasts so more people can hear about it and check the show notes for all the important info and links from this episode. Thank you for listening. 